Thank you to our sponsor, Open Society Foundations, an organization that works to build vibrant and tolerant societies whose governments are accountable and open to the participation of all people. Check one, two, four, six, eight, two, both. Two. Can you hear me? Hello. Hi, everyone. Hi. Thank you, Christy. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Color of Change. I'm honored to be here. Hello, everyone. You having fun at Sundance? It's my first time. I'm having the best time ever. I got a little sick, but I have a hot toddy, so things are going to be okay. And I got to get to be in the presence of these amazing women today, tonight. So I'm excited about this conversation. Let me just put my stuff down. Okay. Put my stuff down. <laughs> Why do I have so much stuff? Okay. Hello in the back. Can you see me when I sit? Is that okay? Okay. So uh, I wanted to give a description of the podcast that Christy just gave me that a 20-something must have wrote because the font is very small. So I'm going to put my glasses on. <laughs> Shout out to D-Nice, by the way, who's always amazing on the set. When I walk in and D-Nice is on the set, I know the vibe is going to be good no matter what's happening. The hashtag Tell Black Stories podcast was created as an extension of Color of Change's Hollywood Culture Project. It is an initiative changing the rules in Hollywood, ensuring accurate, diverse, empathetic, and human portrayals of black people on television and throughout the media landscape. This is hashtag tell black stories. Live from the 2019 Sundance Film Festival! <laughs> so thank you for everybody who's watching, listening. I put my notes, because I want to give them the introductions that I got even better. So uh, please help me to welcome the following. Dream, I'm going to bring you first. OK. So Dream Hampton. Yes. I am a fan of her writing. I can name so many things, Jay-Z decoded, all her stories. And she's an award-winning filmmaker. I remember this. In 99, she produced this Emmy Award-winning Notorious B.I.G. Behind the Music. Oh, 99, my goodness. Uh, of course, she's an organizer. She is. She has opinions. She is. <laughs> she is amazing. She is from Detroit. If anybody else is from Detroit in the building? Um, and then her most recent work, Surviving R. Kelly. She executive produced this for Lifetime Television, and it, of course, it broke ratings and it shook the whole world. Um, and we were glued to the television, and and you are phenomenal, Dream Hampton. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Brie Miranda Bryant is the Senior Vice President of Unscripted Development and Programming for Lifetime. Hi, Brie. Hello. Uh, <laughs> that included, of course, the uh, overseeing the production of Surviving R. Kelly and some upcoming docuseries. She has The Brave uh, with Gretchen Carlson coming up and some other shows. She was also the Senior Vice President, a Senior Vice President at BET Networks, Vice President Development uh, at Production at Oxygen. You've been going, huh? I'm tired. Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> she oversaw several hits such as Bad Girls Club, The Preachers Franchise, uh, The Prancing Elite Project. Sis I mean, I can go on. There's a really long list of shows. Sisterhood of Hip Hop, uh, Snapped, which is, and many others. And she began her career at Oxygen as a develop uh, development assistant in 2004 and then later served as the co-chair of the NBCU Diversity Council. Yay, yes. Brie. Yes, that is Brie, everybody. <laughs> And Marcia Smith is the president of Firelight Media. Yes. Firelight's most recent film is Tell Them We 
are rising. This is the story of black colleges um, and universities. It, pre it premiered here actually 2017 at the Sundance Film Festival uh, to great reviews and also um, her previous film, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution was released also to rave reviews in 2015. Uh, Marsha actually co-founded Firelight in 2000, and she led the organization for eight years, for nearly eight years. And then when she returned in 2012, before she returned, she served as senior vice president at the Atlantic Philanthropies, a molt, is this billion? Is this the B word? Not an M word? Is this a typo? It's not a typo? A multi-billion dollar charitable foundation active in seven countries. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Among other awards, Marsha has received a Primetime Emmy nomination for writing. She won the Writers Guild Award for Best Nonfiction Writing. And she was honored with a 2016 Muse Award from the New York Women in Film and Television. So this is a pretty exciting panel. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hello, everyone. Do you need a mic, Marsha? Also, you have one. Yep, we all mic'd up. OK, so this is a pretty qualified uh, group of women to discuss the roles and the responsibility of the film and television uh, business, not only to portray black and brown women and girls, but also to protect them in, in a way. So um, that's what I'd like to talk about today. So I guess for the whole panel, the first thing I would ask is like, where are we now? Where do you, from your perspective, because each of you probably have different perspectives, but where are we now versus like historically in terms of representation? You want to start, Marsha? No, Marsha. Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, Marsha. <laughs> Um, to start with the easy questions. Uh, yes, yes. First, I should say that there's an error in my bio. Um, our most recent film is Miles Davis, Birth of the Cool, that actually pre premiered, yes. premiered here last night. Yes. Um, um, that's a hard question. I think we see, you know, trends in the media industry that go back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's definitely an opening now, principally because there are black creatives who are really pushing the envelope in the way they portray black women and girls, black communities. I would say I'm kind of a skeptic about how long that will last because I think the industry is fickle um, and does not learn from its own data or, or its own history. Say that. Right? So that, you know, even though we see big openings now because Black Panther made a gajillion dollars and you know, the, the lesson the industry should have learned long ago is that content about African-Americans can be popular. And so there's been, I think, a tradition of skepticism and laziness that has really hurt us. I think also the gatekeepers haven't really changed. I'm hoping that, that you know, the wave of creative production in the industry will help to change that. I think in the nonfiction space, that's an, another another whole right. uh, thing we can talk about. I will say, before I say anything else, I have to tip my hat to Dream and Brie, because I think that um, Surviving R. Kelly is not just a great example of a great piece of work, but the conversation that it started, because it centered black women and girls, it's already an opening for a conversation, but I hope that it will impact the industry as well. And I know that it would not have happened without two black women behind the scenes producing it. What about you, Brie? I think we're further. I mean, I'm, I'm the industry. I'm on the industry side. And for Unscripted, it's a little bit different. Um, there's definitely less of us 
at the table making decisions with offices like mine who can say yes to things like I can. I can probably count them on one hand, wow. um, less than five fingers. But when things like Surviving R. Kelly happen, you know, when you get 25.8 million people watching yes. TV. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. One more time, the number. Okay, I'll do the whole thing. <laughs> the number, one more time. Twenty-five point eight million wow. watched on television, but twenty-one point nine million streamed. Wow! So, when you get large audiences like that, it causes people to wake up, and um, so noise like that is only positive. It only opens up the door for more. And I think things have changed in the way of social media also, in terms of showing support. I mean, Surviving R. Kelly was really a grassroots effort. It was supported by, you know, even a lot of people in this room, including Color of Change. So it takes a village, you know, when we show up, we can do more. Love that. Yeah. Dream, I know you have, you don't have much to say about this topic, I'm sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> like Marsha, I have seen trends come and go. I'm old enough to remember when we thought that Terry McMillan and the, like, the success of her films were going to open certain doors. And that didn't happen. Right. So I think that in a room like this, it's okay to be sober about these things. Right. Um, I can tell you that with surviving R. Kelly in my office, which was a cubicle, it's not, it wasn't like a big office in Buna Murray, in Burbank or Glendale or wherever the heck in the valley I was. Um, like I had a whole like cork board of all of the women who had survived R. Kelly. Some of them who didn't even come on camera and I, because the production is hectic, you know? All productions are hectic. Anyone here who does film or TV or makes anything knows how hectic it is. And I would just keep them first and foremost and centered in everything that I was doing. I mean, I was at war with R. Kelly. I knew that, you know? It, it, like literally? Or, um... Yeah. 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 No, I, yes. yes. I know she was. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, while you were working, were you, I know you were, you were confronted with that reality, but were you literally being... I, mean, I was anticipating moves, yeah. counter moves. I, I, I think I was surprised when someone called in a gun threat to the screening wow. that we had. And I wasn't there. I was in Johannesburg and Brie called me at one o'clock in my morning. Like, what the heck? So I was surprised at that move, but I knew that there was going to be moves and counter moves. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there were going to be people around him who've been eating off him forever. And then I, I knew I'm old enough to know what backlash looks like. You know, and it's not always in film. You know, Marsha and I were just talking about this. You know, when Inzazaki Shange made for Color Girls, she got ripped to shreds for years. I mean, I'm not going to say there's a direct line between any problems that she had after that, but her choreographer, for instance, left America and didn't come back made her home in England because it was so, yeah. to, to stand up for black women feels in our community often like an attack on all black men. And then we saw that again with Alice Walker, who retreated to the hills of Northern California. And so like, I know enough about black feminist history to know that it, it's not all hugs and roses. Right that there's backlash. So I, yeah, I, I went into this in warrior going, mode. You knew yeah. that going in. For sure. How does it even start? Like, where do you even, what was the moment that you decided that you were gonna do this project? And why now? Right. You know? Well, I came onto this project. I, I didn't pitch this project. This was something that, well, Buna Murray called me. Jesse Daniels, I think, was the one who had me in mind. I don't even know why. Buna Murray, they make the show 
with the sisters in the bathing suits that Kanye is married to. The Kardashians. <laughs> the Kardashians. <laughs> no. See, that's what I mean. I mean. Shady on the I've never watched it. I've never watched it. I didn't know all their names, though, because I grocery shop, yes, and they're always in the magazine aisle. Right. So now I know the difference between them. So this was a different project, type yes. of project. So I was them. like, why are y'all calling me? What is Beauty I don't, like, yeah. I watch HGTV and, yeah. like, Chopped. Um, so I love Chopped. I love Chopped, too. And I love the Property Brothers, and I even love Fixer. But anyway, my point is, is and I hadn't seen much Lifetime. And so I was like, why are they, I thought they were going to do, like, a reenactment. Yeah. You know, and I didn't. I didn't want to do that. And then when they said it was a serious docu-series, and then when I talked to Brie, I was like, wow, I really want to do this. Like, he is our generation, you and me, Angie. He's our generation's problem, and we yeah. didn't deal with him back then. And I was like, it's time to deal with this. Yeah. Wow. And then how did, so then it started at Lifetime. It started with um, Creative Inc., which is a pod company under Buna Murray. So that's Jesse Daniels and Joel Carsberg um, and Tamara Simmons who's also a black woman and executive producer on the show. So Tamara lives down in Atlanta, and she had seen some of the media that was generated by the Savages, um, the family of Joycelyn Savage, who is still with R. Kelly. And um, Tamara said, I think there's a show here, and she got in touch with Jesse. Normally, when you get pitches at this point in time, you know, I remember when there were VHSs that we used to have to store in Digibetas, but now everything comes with a link. Mm -hmm. And this one didn't. It was just paper. And when I saw it on paper, and of course we've all heard things, there were about two to three survivors and two sets of parents that were looking for their daughters. And um, the more we got into it and the more research I did, the more I realized that it would be important to tell this story from the very beginning. So we start in 1970 and we end November 2018. So together, we you know join hands with Dream. Wow. <laughs> And we ended up with 54 participants in six hours of content. And that's coming from what I originally thought was going to be 60 to 90 minutes. Wow. Yeah. When you have success like that, does it change? Does it move things forward? Does it help you come up with a next doc? Is it easier to sell, easier to get funding? It depends on what you're trying to sell next. Right. You know, um, internally, there's as many politics. It's as hard to, to say yes to things as it is for producers to pitch in. There's a hierarchy. Every show is an investment. It's so disappointing. So disappointing. But it's a privilege to be able to be in the seat and be able to make decisions like right. that, you know. But just to go to what you were saying also, Marcia, is like, how do you make a moment, a grand moment of a Black Panther or something like that? How do, how do we make that, you know, a movement, to use your class that you taught at Stanford? How, do you, how does that become a movement, you know, instead of a moment? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think, you know, for some people it works. For other people it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, Part of what we do is support emerging filmmakers of color who are producing their first feature-length documentary films. And we support them through the process of the angst that you go through in producing that and trying to get it out in the world. Uh, we have worked with filmmakers who've been very successful with their first films, been nominated, won Emmy Awards, Peabody Awards, Festival Awards, and still have a hard time making a second film. Um, and that... It can be hard for anybody. I think it's doubly hard for women of color to do that because, you know, again, it's like the data is, is just not believed by the gatekeepers. So it doesn't necessarily follow that once you do it, you can do it again. Right. You know, for some, it does work. And 
for those people, I mean, I'm hoping it works for Dream. Yes. Because <laughs> um, where's the know, motivation? Really the motivation is you want to do these projects that change yeah. and move things forward and and help the other things come through the door behind you. Yeah. How do you stay inspired when sometimes it just doesn't? Sometimes you look, you know, you look around and you're like, we're in the same place we were. I mean, that's a big part of it is the staying inspired. I mean, my first film that out of film school I did here in 02 was a narrative short called I Am Ali about a schizophrenic who thought um, he was Muhammad Ali. And, you know, so I didn't even have a doc vision. You know, after that, I did Black August, which is about political prisoners. And then I did a film in Detroit called Treasure about a trans girl who had been married. And these films, I mean, had been murdered. And these films had nothing to do with one another, you know? But in terms of impact on this one, I've been blown away by the impact. You know, it's every, the blowback is whatever, but like that two different states are investigating R. Kelly right now. Wow. I'm very, like, because let them find what they can find. Um, his trial, if you watched episodes three and four, you know what a sham his trial was, how he was able to stretch his trial out for six years. You know, we can get into that in Q&A if anyone wants to talk about it. But at the same time, we've also seen him rechart. Right. Mm -hmm. So we've broken records in terms of viewers. We have um, Kim Fox in Chicago is asking people to come forward if they have a story. And thank you, Rashad, and the former panel for talking about the work that Color Change and orgs like Asada's Daughter and BYP 100 did in Chicago to get um, to get, you know, Anita Alvarez out of there and to have someone like Kim Fox in there who can be responsive to moments like these. So those are amazing. But then also, yes, I believe I can fly and ignition are back on the charts. So that happens too, you know, and that that's very much some Trump shit. Let's just speak in terms of the positive impact for a second, because we did spark a global conversation. It's not a national conversation. It's a global conversation. And what I think is very different because people like Tarana Burke, you know, have worked so hard and, you know, girls for gender equity and um, Black Women's Blueprint, there's a bunch of people that sort of laid the foundation before we got to this moment. And being here now and having, I was at the hair salon slash barbershop last week, (laughs) and um, there were a group of people, and for so long, it's just us talking to each other about what's, oh my God, this interview, and this happened, this happened. So it's been challenging because it's all in our head, and now we're starting to have this dialogue with other people who can engage with us, which is sort of therapeutic. But what was interesting was, there were like 10 or 12 gathered. Not everybody knew each other. And, and it was men and women. And I think, you know, the Me Too movement in the last year and a half has been fantastic, but it's been exclusively women. What was really nice about this conversation and other conversations is that it's been, it's crossed gender lines. So there were guys that were talking about um, their experience as survivors, and they said it without shame, and they were heard without judgment. And so for things like that, I think we do have to be grateful um, for the impact that we're having, and that's why we keep doing the stuff that we do. For sure. You You mentioned earlier, Marsha, about supporting young talent, up-and-coming producers, directors. How do we make that more broad? How do we demand that from the gatekeepers? How do we help push like this fresh talent? Because that's what it is, right? If we need more, if we need to be in front of the camera more, we need to also be, but we need the writers, we need directors, you know. How do we do that? I'm not sure I have an answer to that. I mean, I I think that um, the more we can support projects that come out, the better. Mm -hmm. Uh, The more we can be fearless in demanding a different kind of content, the better. Um, And I think, you know, the reality that we have to continue to raise is that 
it makes a difference in the quality of the work. Who's doing it? Mm -hmm. um, it's possible to do the R. Kelly story and not have the kind of impact that this film has had. Yes. Um, but because it's in Dream's hands and she centers black women the way that she did, it can. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I think we've seen that in our own work. I mean, if you're if you're talking to people who have lived through a traumatic experience or who have lived through a very intense period that's historically significant, it makes a difference who they're talking to. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, for the Black Panther film, we interviewed a brother who had been in a shootout with the LA police. And Stanley interviewed him and asked him, how did you feel in that moment? And he said, I felt free. Mm. Um, and I contend he might not have said that to somebody else. <laughs> I bet he would, though. Yeah. yeah. And, and I contend that those women that spoke to Dream might not have been as comfortable sharing their own story yes. as they were with her. So it makes a real difference in the quality of the work. Who's doing the work? Yeah. And I think we have to keep raising that as a reality, too, because, it, you know, it's not about diversity. This is about quality and about, you know, presenting a realistic picture of who we are in this country. And, and that's something that we have to keep pushing for. Yes. And I want to shout out Tamara Simmons. Yes, thank you, Marsha. I want to shout out Tamara Simmons, who, you know, Brie mentioned before, because I faced these women on camera, like I was on the other side mm -hmm. of the camera asking them the questions, but she held space for them for many months. Like when we were in pre-production at five in the morning after they just did the interview with me and they were all messed up because of that interview. That was literally the space that she held, was like caring for these women before and after the process. And to this day, you know, she's still caring for them. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I've thought about this and been almost like worried. I worry about everything, which is nuts. <laughs> but <laughs> I worry about this because, you know, when something is this successful and it's in your hands, so you care about it and you're making sure that it's done with purpose. It's not just done. I'm sure everybody wants to get ratings and you want it to be successful, but it's done with purpose. But what happens when something um, is done with purpose and it's so successful that other people come in and want to do the next version of it without the purpose? You know what I mean? How do we protect our stories from that happening? Do you have an, does anyone have an answer? Because I'm worried. <laughs> I mean, intention is a, is a huge part of the game. I mean, mm -hmm. so I hear you on that. And, and we have been getting those kinds of questions. I'm sure you have too. Some of it is a whataboutism. Like, when are you going to do Harvey Weinstein as if there aren't two docs about him already being made? Mm -hmm. But then there's like, do you want to follow Russell Simmons around Bali? No, I don't actually. Like, that was incredibly, you know, dark doing this. And, and so there, there are ways that we could talk about it. Like, if someone does want to do that next project, then yeah, for sure, I'm down to have conversations about it for that next producer, because I, I don't need to do all the work either. How did it change the network when the network has a hit this big? Well, this was different for Lifetime in that a lot of the unscripted stuff is more reality, that we haven't done a lot of documentaries. Mm -hmm. This pulls from the tenants of the movie team, what they do really well, and they do um, a lot of movies that lift up women. So there's the Flint um, movie that we did. There's the Antoinette Tuff story. It was different for Unscripted because no one had ever done a doc like this before. So it just opens up the door to do more. This, I think, was an exploration of power. The next um, three that I do will be about love. Love? About love. Nice. 
Black love. What are you guys inspired by now? Like, who's getting it right? What are you seeing? Or even here at the festival, maybe. What have you seen, like, that you feel like they're getting it right and this is helping push us forward? I really, I mean, Alex Rivera doing this hybrid of documentary. <laughs> Which, by the way, Angie, you should know. You should make some noise about this. Actually, the, okay. This is the so only. Bossy. <laughs> am, this is that's what my daughter says. This is the only feature film by a Latino at the festival. Really? Well, it's two thing. people, by the way, Christina Ibarra's. And yeah, and Alex. Yeah. So anyway, Infiltrators, which is an amazing um, hybrid of doc and drama, mm -hmm. and then I also saw um, Jahan and Kareem's film. Gray hackers, and so you know, get, getting to see those two docs and docudramas here mm -hmm. um, has been really inspiring. I'm with that. The documentaries this year are off the charts. I saw one that we helped support through our documentary lab called "Always in Season" by Jackie Olive. Um, it is tough. It's searing, but really important. It's about lynching, um, uh. not just the history of lynching, although that is part of the film, but a modern day lynching that took place in North Carolina in 2014. Wow. So that's a really important film. And there's another film here that we supported as well called Words from a Bear. It's about... Uh, oh, wrong. Hey, you got a shout out! <laughs> it's a native filmmaker. It's a story about a native writer and Scott Mamaday who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1969. I wow. hope, you, hope you get a chance to see that. Yes, shout out to you. What about in television? Are there shows, what are the shows that we're being represented in that you feel good about that are exciting to you? That I feel good about that are exciting. Lifetime has a ton that are that are coming out that we'll see this <laughs> understand, year. I understand. <laughs> I'm excited about Tina Perry over at OWN. I think that she is a very smart woman who has an interesting vision for that network. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about Nina Diaz at, at VH1 and MTV because I know that they, they have some good stuff coming over there too. So there are some women of color who are doing it. My next. Um docu-series, that's another six-hour docu-series, it's on BET this March. Um, um, it? It's called Finding Justice, and I partnered again with Color of Change on this, and we look at six different injustices in different parts of the country. So we were in Georgia on um, election night because we're doing voter suppression. We do uh, Stand Your Ground in Florida. We do police violence in Minneapolis. We do the um, bail bond issue in St. Louis with the people working to close the workhouse. So that comes out in March, and I'm really excited about that. Nice. What is the call to action for all of us here, everybody, that, that we want to see change? We want to see this not be just a moment, but a movement. How do we support you guys, support you know your fellow writers and... Documentary well, for me, I've, I would urge people to support independent documentaries. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, you'll find them everywhere now. You'll find many of them on PBS. You'll find them on Netflix, on Amazon. They're there. There's an incredible array of documentaries made by people of color now on contemporary issues, on historical issues. Um, so seek them out and watch them and support them. Yeah. Dream. Also, look at shorts. You know, like I said, I came here in '02 with shorts. In Detroit, we have an excellent um, program called Detroit Narrative mm -hmm. Agency um, that Ill Weaver is here. Um, yes, amazing, like activist organizer trying to envision a new way to even get films made with intention. I, I don't know if Aya is here, but she did an amazing web series of just black trans women in Detroit being joyful. So these are the kinds of like short projects that sometimes we don't look at shorts. 
And shorts are where new um, and emerging filmmakers are really getting off some good work. So yeah. I mean, it's as simple as support, right? Sometimes yeah. it's really just that. We say that, but we, it's, it's what's needed to, to keep going. What about for you in your space? Well, what I'm really excited for right now, and I think the more you guys talk about the things that are important, the more people hear it. So Dan Berman um, is a professor who has been following Centoya Brown for 15 years. He's dedicated a lot of his life to, and he shot over 175 hours following Centoya Brown leading up to her clemency, um, which we're all very excited about. So people like Dan, people like Jim um, Derogatis, who I'm probably getting his last name wrong, who has been following the R. Kelly stuff for the last 25 years, you know, saying their names, supporting them, helps people like me say yes to projects like that. And Jim Derogatis is doing a project on Hulu with Lyra Cabral, who's an amazing um, filmmaker, gender non-conforming, their um, pronouns are they and them. And I cannot wait to see what they do. I think we should take some questions uh, from you guys. I feel like I can feel them out there. Do we have any questions? Oh, yeah, hi. How y'all doing again? Thanks so much for this panel and for Hi. the great work that you're doing. Um, my name is Tiffany Walden. I'm a journalist in Chicago. Um, and Surviving R. Kelly sparks such a conversation in, in the city. And as a media um, maker, just wondering, since so much of the issue with Surviving R. Kelly has to do with the media's role in continuing to write press and uh, stories about his music and help him you know, keep the popularity that he had, how can we as a millennial generation take the next step in terms of holding our artists accountable, especially in Chicago. So much of the conversation on social media was about different activists and music or uh, music groups in the city who are doing some of the same abuse that we spoke about in the R. Kelly um, situation. So what can we do as media makers to kind of hold people accountable? I think you should answer take that, Angie. Me? No, yeah. this is you. No. Kelly. I'm the moderator. You <laughs> but I think that you have, I mean, because the reason I was, I was telling Angie that she could maybe take this, because there are, the principles are always the same. I mean, I, I became political around South Africa, you know, as a youth in the 80s. So boycott, divestment and sanctions, right? In addition to if there is a legal case to be made, right? I just wish that, and we and Angie were talking about this before we began the panel, like, unless, you know, when Aaliyah, when he married Aaliyah, yeah. right? And we have some of this footage in there. We have Big Les awkwardly sitting on a couch like this on BET, being like, why are y'all dressed alike? <laughs> are you married, you know? And Jamila said something in the doc, she said that should have been a full stop, Agreed. you know? And we, there, it wasn't a full stop. After that, I wrote um, an article about him in 2000 in Vibe, it, it was published in November. And I talked about his marriage to Aaliyah. If, if they were at the time still denying it. Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. It was November 2000. So it was like, it hit the press about six weeks before Jim DeRogatis' reporting about the pattern of his predation. So the Aaliyah thing happens. They're both denying it. Everyone in the industry was like, Aaliyah never commented on it. Never commented. Died. It left like a window. I think everybody who, who's been in the business for that long, that kind of witnessed it and I think there was like a shame for everyone because I think there was a window of doubt, just enough where you could kind of be like, oh, I don't really know what happened exactly. Was it really confirmed? And then, you know, and, and they just going about his business and nobody's making an uproar. So, you, you know, you just kind of keep going about your day, which is awful, which was one so special about what you guys did. It's like, it was awful. It was awful. And that should never happen again. You know, that should never happen. 
And I think the same way you say when you want things to change, that we have to support these projects and we have to support these writers and directors, you also have to make noise all the time. Because as much as like something happens, maybe it's not R. Kelly or maybe it's another artist that does something that I feel is morally not in line with, with me, I, I may not ever talk about the artist personally. I don't necessarily have control over what happens over the company that I work for. I can voice my opinion and often I'm heard. But what they respond to is noise, is noise from the public. And so I thank you for that. I actually sent you a, a message after I saw the doc because I was inspired by that about how we use our platforms to actually like change the world and change the way we act. And it's not even just about pointing the finger out. It's like also pointing the finger in when you see something like that and like, what, what did I do? What, what was I thinking in that moment? What were we all thinking? How did we all let that happen for so long? And I think, I think it was really special what you, get, what you guys did. And those are the questions when you say coming back in around patriarchy in general, right? Like we get reports that Morgan Freeman married his step-granddaughter. We may have someone in our family, you know, your brother might have turned 40 and is coming to Thanksgiving with a 22 year old, right? So we have this way that we haven't really interrogated patriarchy in our community. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been enormous labor by black feminists since we arrived here, you know? So, so the, that's how Aaliyah happened. The short answer of that is because when I, my father was 37, he married a 19 year old because my 46 year old, you know, brother has never brought anyone over 30 home for Thanksgiving or Christmas. So if we can start to have those real conversations and then it's not just now R. Kelly, there's a pattern of predation. There are people who will be like, well, what about this one? And what about that one? And he did this and he slept with a younger woman. I'm like, no, I, this was something I had never seen before. And when I started getting on the phone after Brian then brought me on with the survivors, the level of sadism involved in R. Kelly's story, the ecosystem, that the kind of the way that he built a system around his predation, it was at a level I'd not seen. And I see how many people didn't see it. Some of it is you're in Chicago, where you're king. There's Jordan and you, right? Then there's like the literal way that women are behind closed doors, often with the locks on the outside. So when I went to the studio to just do a profile on him for Vibe magazine, there were a series of closed and locked doors. And so after I did that profile, by the way, and then Jim Derogatis came out six weeks later and was like, yeah, there are all these lawsuits. It wasn't just Aaliyah. There's 16 year old Tiffany Hawkins who's suing him. There's this, that, and the third. And then in 2002, my God, the videotape. So when I missed that boat, when I didn't open Jeffrey Dahmer's refrigerator, I never did another magazine profile of an artist again. Hi, uh, my name is Lady Scribe. I'm a publicist um, from Seattle, Washington. And my question is pretty much to piggyback on that. Um, did you know about, is it Epstein or the backing of, of Lifetime TV and the registered sex offender or whatever that was? I seen that on there. And what I, my question is like, how do you deal with that when we are all out here networking, looking for funding? you know, for someone to believe in our projects and pick it up. And did you know that the history or whoever was behind Lifetime before you made the deal, was that ever disclosed? I'm not following, sorry. Okay, um, you know, you do no. you know about Jeffrey Epstein? I learned about this uh, recently. It was a newspaper article about one of Trump's and Clinton's friends who um, 
is very similar to R. Kelly. I tweeted about it um, after I learned it. I don't work at Lifetime. I got hired as a producer to do this deal. So no, I didn't like, A&E is a publicly held company that is enormous. So no, I didn't know about Jeffrey Epstein. By the time that story came out, we were in the can. I mean, I'm like editing a project that's coming out in March right now. So that was absolutely in post-production at that point. But yeah, at Jeffrey Epstein, I hope that, you know, people rise up and like go after him. I, like I said, R. Kelly is my problem. I care about black girls. I care about Asante, Geronda. I care about, <laughs> I'm like, get messed up, but I care about Azriel and Joy, who are still with R. Kelly right now, whose parents haven't been able to talk to them for two or three years. So those are the, I care about black girls and black women. So what's happening with Jeffrey Epstein, there should be activism around that and I would support it, I would amplify it. But no, I'm not, if you, you can name a million predators right now. You ask me if I'm on it, no, I'm not on it. I'm gonna try to like, you know, go to Jamaica after I rap. <laughs> is that, is that, does that become a thing that, it, it's like a, a burden to bear, right? It's like when you do a project like this, you can't control every person at every piece of this. And then does that discourage you in any way? Or would it have, this, if you knew how, how much feedback, how, how much of that would come, would it have discouraged you in any way when starting the project? You know, I tweeted something about this. I even made it my pinned tweet so that I could log off Twitter and give my password to my assistant and not listen to all this whataboutism anymore. But if you wonder how R. Kelly got away with this for 30 years, it's because of the whataboutism, mm -hmm. the leave me out of it, which you've seen with some celebs. Or personal attacks, I would imagine, as well, right? Yeah, this idea that we don't have to look at ourselves. Like, yes, Jeffrey Epstein, but I'm trying to deal with my brother. My literal brother that my mom gave birth to. <laughs> yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Morgan Johnson with The Tribe in Chicago. Um, I want to ask whether you feel like reality TV has distorted the audience's views of documentary because I had so many conversations of people who just assume that documentaries for TV are scripted and that you pay subjects. Like, how can we educate audiences so that they know that this is not scripted television, this is real? For unscripted television, there are lots of different facets. I think because we've just been inundated with what we consider reality television for so long now that um, everybody's expectations is that it's fake. But I think you can look at the creators and see people like Dreamhampton and just know that the content is real. For most documentaries, you cannot pay participants anyway so that you're not skewing any, anything that they'd be saying when they're sitting down and representing whatever story they're sharing. Um, that's a key part of it. Whereas with reality television, you know, standard reality, as we think about it, talent does get paid. Yeah, I think the kind of uh, funding streams for documentary nonfiction content are changing so drastically now. Um, and that the kind of barriers that used to exist between genres are breaking down and you know between platforms are breaking down so my kids watch movies on their phones which i would still never do but um <laughs> so i think 
you know, the kind of money that's getting pumped in there will eventually change how we talk about different kinds of content. It's interesting because now there are a lot of documentary films that are series uh, or docu-series. That's not a word that existed a few years ago. But, you know, because of the explosion in content, there are all different kinds of forms and lengths from shorts to multi-hour series that people have access to. Hi, my name is Misha. I really appreciate and acknowledge each and every one of the women who are sitting up here for the storytelling that you do and for the stand that you are for black women and girls. And I guess the question that I have is just in terms of your experience around story mining and like looking for stories that maybe are not about people who are in the limelight or who are people who just would get as much acknowledgement um, as like an R. Kelly, for example. Like, what have you discovered just about mining stories about people and women, women of color who have experienced levels of abuse or levels of um, just experiencing kind of what the R. Kelly situation was and how you really make a decision about as a filmmaker and as a storyteller about what, what stories can really come to life and really have an impact. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, the film that I did before this um, premiered at the Los Angeles Film Festival in, I guess, 2016. I think it's 2019 now. Maybe it's 2015. Um, it's definitely 2019. It is 2019. <laughs> okay. Um, it was about Shelly Hilliard, a trans girl from Detroit who'd been murdered after the police forced her to become a cooperating informant. Her story wasn't one that people were looking for. Um, I was really supportive of places like Shadow and Act and different journalists who lifted it up for the festivals that took it. And then, you know, Frameline, which is like the largest LGBTQ distribution for independent films, bought it. And you can, you know, download it or see it on Comcast or whatever cable network you have. So, and Apple. So, I mean, and by the way, these girls, this isn't about R. Kelly. This was about a, a lot of women that are, and I'm very grateful that the first two questions were from, you know, women from Chicago. I mean, he really targets regular schmegular girls, like from the hood, who are like in the 10th grade at McDonald's. That's his whole lane, you know? Which is why I find it crazy that people were trying to even come at me, like anyone, you know what I mean? Right. I'm like, what are, you, what are you defending? This is the hill you want to die on? <laughs> but... She's got such a way with words. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, I, I hear you that this may have, I think that people may have tuned in because they thought this was about R. Kelly, but you got to know Kitty. You got, And by the way, Brie is excellent at that. Like Brie is like, find me more stories, go deeper in their story. Also, we had a legal department at Buna Murray and Lifetime. So all of my like interviews with these women weren't loving because I had to almost act like I was deposing them because we had to have airtight cases. So when they said something to me, I had to ask all these follow-up questions that felt like interrogations, quite frankly. And so I knew the level. So it, I mean, it's actually surprising that this was like Lifetime's, it was probably not Bree's first um, like docu-style thing, but they actually raised it to a level and wanted all this cooperation. I mean, there was a point when I was like, Bree, we're going to find another woman who's going to say the same stuff. And she was like, well, I want that woman because we, ha because we have a public that is disbelieving of black women and girls. Mm -hmm. 
They don't, for all kinds of historical reasons, because we were once shadow and property and it was not illegal to rape us. And we still grapple with that history in this country today. And from our own community, from our own people, we do not believe when black women say they're being abused. And so, you know, that it was, we had to just stack these stories and really get cooperation. Yeah, I mean, most of the work that we do is, is historical, and that is because we believe that we're largely uneducated about African American history in this country, um, and that you know generationally now uh, people will learn about these important moments and people through watching films, and we produce them with that in mind. So you know people have an image about you know you go into Starbucks and you hear Miles Davis. Or, and it's everybody's first jazz album is kind of blue yeah, or, true. you know, bitches brew, <laughs> but you don't really understand, you know, what drove him as an artist or where he came from, the, the context he came out of. Or you went to an HBCU, but you don't understand when HBCU started and the, the kind of role that they have played in generating, you know, generations of educated black people. So... You know, we could tell a million stories, so it was always hard to choose, uh, but we try to choose stories that people think they know something about, but they don't largely, and that we think are critically important. So we are about to start working on a four-hour series on the, the transatlantic slave trade, which we're trying to be really ambitious about, to say, you know, most people in this country do not understand the effect of hundreds of years of bringing Africans out of Africa and spreading them across the diaspora and the role that that played in creating what we now call racism and how we now understand who we are. Um, so that's what we're doing. I think we have time for two more questions. Hi. Hello. I want to say thank you for coming here and for giving your perspective on your stories and thank you. I was watching the um, R. Kelly docuseries. That was like literally my full week of watching that. And I appreciate you and thank you for your creativity. I wanted to ask, as women of color in filmmaking, you started off with controversial topics about women and about, you know, abuse. Currently, there's, a, there's an issue. I'm sorry, I'm trying not to get emotional. <laughs> Currently, there's an issue in Native country with... Okay, take your time. Take your time. With missing, murdered right. indigenous women. <laughs> and it's something I've always wanted to cover. And I've seen multiple people cover this topic, but I'm afraid no one will listen. Were you ever afraid that no one would listen to your documentaries? And how did you make people aware? How did you bring a community together, a community of different colors, different people, different genders. How did you bring them together for this issue? And I'm sorry for crying. No, it's okay. It's all right. Thank you. Marsha, I think I'd like to hear you, you speak to that. Are you ever afraid that people are not going to listen? Uh, yeah, you're always afraid of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to hear what Dream had to say about that. I mean, I think there are always some people who are not going to listen. Uh, I think as, you know, disenfranchised people, you always question that, but you also have to forge ahead. I mean, I think one of the joys of doing this work is knowing how important it is to tell these stories, that if we don't tell them, either they won't be told at all, 
or they will be told wrong. So what I would say to you is, I don't know if you're a filmmaker, but I think you should think about producing that film. That's what I, that's what I think. I think that is, that's a film that, um, you know, it's a film that we need to see, that needs to be out in the world, and it needs to be done by you. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> I talked to a native filmmaker a few years ago who said, you know, look, you got to understand our stories have not been told. We'd rather have them not told than told wrong. We have a very long memory. <laughs> and, you know, I would say to you, do it. Um, because you can't leave it to anybody else to do. And if you do, I mean, someone will grab one of that story. All right. Yeah, I mean, the, the question is, the question is, who's going to get the money to tell the story? And you're going to have to fight to get the money to tell the story. But that's something that you should do. Thank you for, for sharing. And we should talk afterwards, actually, because I would like to hear more about it. Tarana Burke um, came into the office a week or so ago, and she was talking to me about this project. Um, because I didn't know about how many missing women and girls, native women and girls, um, that go missing every day and are murdered every day. Um, so we talked about what a project like that looks like. Um, so I'd love to talk to you afterwards. And we can put our heads together. I know Soledad O'Brien is also working on a project too, um, which I, I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk about, but it's black and missing. It's, you know, black and missing young woman. And there were two, um, it was a pitch. I heard it and I loved and I loved it and we ended up not getting it. But there was a woman who was a police officer down in the DMV area, and um, she couldn't take it anymore hearing so many um, stories about black women going missing down there. So she quit her job um, to find them, and she was joined by her sister-in-law, who's a social worker. So together, the two of them um, are, have actively started a nonprofit. But I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Yeah. Those two, those two women, um, we honored them on Black Girls Rock, which was a TV show that I helped produce for about seven years. But obviously, Wind River, is that the name of the yeah. film? So when you get like, and that film, you know, was good, but it did what we always see Hollywood do, even when it's independent cinema, which is like, we have this story to tell about what happens to Native women. So let's find a white cop to be the person who tells the story. And let's have, the, you know, at the center of it, th this romantic energy between these two white actors. And, and then the Native woman becomes this incidental kind of ghost in her, in her own story. Um, I don't know if people saw Wind River. I've watched it more than once, you know? It's not a bad movie, but it does what Hollywood and what, quite frankly, I mean, it's not just Hollywood at this point. That is an independent film. I'm sure they yes, made that for less absolutely. than $10 million. Absolutely. And they still did exactly what Hollywood always does, which was centered white folks in a story about people of color. That's why you have to do it. <laughs> you got a room full of support already. <laughs> um, we have one more, uh, time for one more. Hi, um, I'm here doing uh, review coverage of films at the festival for um, The Hollywood Reporter and um, Out Magazine. And my question is about, did you think the reviews of your docuseries were fair, if you even look at the reviews? 
and just in general, like the critical reception to anyone on the panel, do you feel like the critical conversations about your films have been sort of on the level, you know, if you have any examples to share? Because I was just, I just reviewed the Toni Morrison documentary that is here at the festival, and I came of age in the time when Toni Morrison was a revered person, but I wasn't fully aware of how terrible she was treated for most of her career when people wrote about her books, um, which we all know are genius. <laughs> so um, love to hear your thoughts. Elizabeth Mendez Barry, I don't know if she's in the room, but I just want to shout her. Yeah, I just want to shout her out because um, she's at the Nathan Cummings Foundation. She herself was a um, longtime culture critic, and she is trying to create space for arts criticism, like to kind of support this dying, you know, art form, quite frankly. I'm someone who believes in criticism. I'm, I'm critical, <laughs> and I believe that it's a space to grow. Um, and yeah, we got some great reviews. I mean, Brie was like really happy with Variety, the New York Times. And then we got a critical review at Vulture, which is New York Magazine, which I appreciated a lot of what the author had to say. And then I had to tweet them and be like, but Lyric Cabral isn't the director. It was like this really, and I don't even mean to like get on that reporter because I know what it's like in this area, in this industry right now where you're not getting paid. Someone wants to give you $150 for a 700 word review. They want it in 24 hours. So there are a lot of things that have created a really depressed and absolutely not diverse kind of arts criticism field out here, but it's absolutely essential in terms of framing. I mean, we, we had a ton of press. I didn't expect it, um, but it was amazing, the press that we actually got on this. And a lot of it, some of it was critical interventions that I thought were necessary. Um, and, and most of it was re really great. And by great, I don't mean just that it praised us, but it, criticism has the ability to raise questions in the aftermath, post-production questions, questions that can carry the film further um, in community conversations, dialogues, and in, you know, just art conversations, the aesthetic and the formal. And I would just like to say, I love the positive ones, because of course you love the positive ones, but I was just so grateful that people were talking, period, um, because we worry about that. And if they don't talk, then no one hears it. Most importantly, though, um, I'm grateful for all of the journalists and the bloggers and the Instagrammers and the influencers who kept saying those survivors' names. Because the more we say them, the more they're heard, the more they're validated, the more they're safe. So whatever the review is, as long as they keep talking about them, is great. You have to have a certain kind of thick skin to write. You can't, yeah. you can't be afraid of a bad review or whatever you do. You can't be afraid. It's going to happen. If, you, if no, you're not making noise... It probably doesn't matter. You're doing something that doesn't matter. So you can't be afraid of that. You have thick, very thick skin, though. I watched some of the feedback that you went through, and you handled it like a G. <laughs> so I'm from Detroit. <laughs> I thank you all for your thank time you, today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Color James, for inviting me. And to our listeners, what story would you like to be told? Let us know by using the hashtag TellBlackStories. For more on the hashtag TellBlackStories podcast, visit storytellers.colorofchange.org slash podcast.